The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, When you see the desolation sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now. No, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I have already told you everything. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As many of you who have raised children know, or who have worked closely with children know, children go through a phase in their lives where much of what they want to learn about the world comes from putting things in their mouth. They want to taste things, they want to gnaw on things, they want to swallow things, even books become fair game. You know, they get kind of dog-eared and their little teeth marks around the edges. That's why the board books are so good. They help with teething. Somehow this data that they get from putting things in their mouths gives them important information about how to interpret the world. From this observation of children, together with the collect or the summary prayer that we have today that introduces the readings for the service, a question arises in my mind. What does the Bible taste like? You remember the colic says, uh, exhorts us to read, mark, uh, and inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures. We're exhorted us to use our sense of hearing, our sense of sight, our sense of touch. I think marking could be touching. Although I suppose it could also mean to note. And also, as I say, our sense of taste to inwardly digest what the Bible may be telling us about Jesus Christ. So I ask again, what does the Bible taste like? If we eat it, how does it affect the way we interpret the world? How much of the Bible should a person eat at one sitting? What does a balanced, lifelong diet of Bible look like? Are there different Bible diets for different times of life? 
the way pet food manufacturers target little kitties and middle-aged cats, cats with certain kinds of digestive problems, mature cats. You know the kind of uh, uh, marketing I'm talking about. Is it similar for humans in the Bible? I've wondered about that. And while I'm joking a little bit, I'm not joking totally, because if you look at the Bible, it is filled with imagery of food. It's an incredibly important part of our biblical heritage, the whole idea of food. In the Jewish tradition, uh, there's a tradition of when children are old enough to start to read and study the Torah, of making little cakes out of the Hebrew letters, uh, sweetened, slightly sweetened, so that as they learn to study, they're eating these little letters, so that they know that studying scripture is a sweet and nourishing pursuit. And we know that there are many texts in the Bible that refer to food as uh, God's actions as food, scripture as food for life, as God, to God as our nourishment. For example, we may remember the psalm that, that tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or the prophet Isaiah, in one of the passages from that book of the Bible, foretells how the Lord will prepare at the end of time for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. This is also an appropriate time of year to have this colic because the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I don't know about you, I'm already thinking about food and my mouth is starting to water a little bit. Early on in the prophet Ezekiel's ministry, God gives Ezekiel a scroll to eat and tells Ezekiel to go speak these words, God's words, to the Israelites. And of course, we know so much of Jesus' teaching takes place in the context of meals, both in people's homes and in uh, more open places. And the central feature of our worship on Sunday mornings is the Feast of the Eucharist, patterned on Jesus' Last Supper with his friends, and which the Christian tradition has taught is a foretaste. The meal that we celebrate around this altar is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we'll enjoy in the presence of God at the end of time. So, one might say that the Bible represents a vast feast of foods, of many cultures, many centuries, many cuisines, some familiar, some strange, prepared for us by God through the Holy Spirit and through our ancestors in faith. The banquet contains the exquisite and the mundane, comfort foods and discomfort foods, the multiple course banquet and the single serving of gruel, the agreeable pudding and the bitter medicine. And being a church, as we are, the Episcopal Church, in the lectionary tradition, we get systematically exposed over three years of Sundays to a good breadth of the Bible. And through that means of the lectionary, we're more or less ensured that we get a reasonably balanced diet of Scripture. We're meant to be exposed to the whole of God's story in a way that prevents us 
from growing fat and slothful on having our own favorites again and again and again. I don't know about you, but there are certain parts that I would go back to again and again and other parts that I would avoid. For example, the passages that were given this morning. If I were in a buffet line, I would keep moving. But we have the lectionary. Now, these are apocalyptic texts, the fancy word from the Greek, which means to uncover or to reveal. In apocalyptic texts from the Bible, uh, God is usually shown acting in some way mightily, sometimes violently, to reveal or uncover a new order where things will be made right, where things will be overturned, where things will be made right, the status quo will be upset, will be disordered, and something new will come into being. Something that's present somehow, but, is, but has been hidden and covered. Now, the fact that I'm uncomfortable with these texts says a lot about my status in the world, my status in this world as a well-educated, comfortable, white, gainfully employed man with a comfortable, well-educated, white, gainfully employed wife, two healthy children living in a safe place, not threatened with gunfire or mortar fire or sectarian violence or environmental degradation, who has good health insurance and plenty of access to social and intellectual capital. It says something, I think, that these kinds of texts make me feel uncomfortable. And I suspect there are those of us in the room who fit in those categories who may also feel uncomfortable with these texts. Because these kinds of passages are usually intended to appeal to people who are on the margins of society. People who live in danger or oppression or both. In fact, both, at least two, and probably three of our passages today were intended for precisely that kind of audience. People who live on the margins, who are under oppression of some kind, who live in a dangerous world that does not treat them well. The Daniel passage is likely addressed to Israelites who are oppressed by Syrian overlords in the second century BC. During that time of that occupation, one of the foreign kings actually sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Jerusalem temple. Now, it's hard for us maybe to imagine just how uh, incredible that is, how disturbing that is. But uh, as kind of a rough analogy, imagine that the United States was taken over and our overlords had a big bonfire barbecue in the dome of the Capitol. And feeding that fire was the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I mean, it's in your face. We are your bosses and we're going to rub it in. Or the passage from Mark's Gospel that seems to reflect the status of embattled Jews and Jewish Christians under Roman domination during the first century. The phrase there 
uh, in the gospel passage, the desolating sacrilege. When you see the desolating sacrilege, some uh, commentators think that this refers to an order given by uh, the emperor Caligula to put his statue into the temple. Again, as a defiant, in-your-face message to the Jewish people that I am to be your God, not your God. So some people think that, that, uh, that that's what that uh, phrase refers to. It never actually happened, although Roman legions were sent into, that, uh, into Jerusalem to, to make sure that it happened. Caligula was assassinated, and so that plan uh, didn't happen. But you get a sense of the kind of uh, idolatry that was being forced on the Israelites. So some think it may be that. Some think it might be the... Uh, uh, revolutionary zealot activity uh, on the part of Jews uh, to get the Romans out. They used the temple precincts as a, as a staging ground for small revolts and for um, proclamation, uh, raising rabble. And uh, for many very pious Jews, they saw that as sacrilege. God will take care of us. We don't need to, uh, to help God get the Romans out. God's going to do it. And if you do that in the temple, you're, you're making it a, a sacrilegious place. In any case, both of these texts would have had tremendous appeal to people living under oppressive systems. They would have appealed to people who were waiting, waiting for God to make things right. Now, perhaps we don't think we have anything in common with people who might have found these passages to be the word of God, the word of hope to them. Don't imagine that we live under oppressive systems. Most of us are quite comfortable and wouldn't have much to gain, we don't think, by a change in the status quo. We might not be able to imagine thinking to ourselves, how long, God, until you make things right? But I think we'd be wrong if we thought that, that these passages don't have anything to say to us. Many of us live in personal circumstances that we yearn to have reversed. We or those we love may live daily with physical or emotional or spiritual pain or find ourselves in financial circumstances that are extremely difficult. Moving out from ourselves, we may be, may be troubled, disturbed, kept awake at night by bad things that happen to good people or bad things that happen to people that we even think are bad but, but that are wrong, that are wicked even, that contain evil. We may see injustice all around us, poverty, hunger, disease, homelessness, and we may work hard to address it but still feel as if our efforts are like using a teaspoon to bail out the Titanic as it sinks. We might think that wars and poverty and disease thousands of miles away or much closer to home, we may realize, in fact, that those things do harm us and that somehow we might spend our money better on babies than on bombs. For all these reasons and more, we might actually find that these passages do 
connect with us and connect with a yearning, a yearning that we have inside of us for God to act, to uncover, to reveal a new way, a different order, a new creation. Now, what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about these apocalyptic passages in the New Testament particularly, as they come out of the mouth of Jesus, is that they're both very specific and really, really vague. Jesus' imminent return was of intense interest to the first generation of, of Christians. And they spent a lot of time reflecting on what he had to say about the eschaton, the end times, as the confirmation class knows. They know all about the end times after today. But Jesus, on the one hand, gave these very specific hints. And on the other hand, when he was asked directly, when is this going to happen? He'd say, I don't know. Only the Father knows. So where does this leave us? Well, I don't think we're supposed to get caught up in predicting when the end will actually come. Although the huge popularity of the Left Behind series of novels suggests that millions and millions and millions of people have a little bit of curiosity about this. But I don't think it's our business. It might be big business for people who are publishing the novels, but it's not our business. I think we're meant to continue to be faithful, perhaps even to become more faithful in our ministries, whatever they are, as faithful friends, as faithful parents and spouses and partners and caregivers, as faithful workers for justice in the many ways that we can work for justice at home or abroad. We're called to continue to be faithful and to let God take care of the end. For Scripture says that God will take care of the end. Now, this kind of message from Scripture may initially taste kind of unpleasant. It doesn't bring us immediate gratification. But I believe these kinds of passages bring us something deeper, something more lasting, something more filling. I think they feed our hope our hope and hope is something that sustains hope is food that sustains our deepest being and our deepest trust that God will make it right God will make it right that is food that sustains Amen